As bridge tolls come down, the provincial debt heads way up to talk about that and plenty of other topics with Global BC's Keith Baldry and the Vancouver Sun's Vaughn Palmer. Later in the show, political science professor Hamish Telford joins us. This is Radio NL's Inside Politics for Kamloops Computer Center. Here's NL News Director Shane Woodford. Good morning. Thank you for listening. Pleasure to be joined on, uh, joined on the phone this morning by Keith Baldry and fresh from his holiday vacation, uh, Vaughn Palmer. Gentlemen, welcome. Hey Shane, be back. Good to be back. Good time off, Vaughn. You all rested and relaxed? Oh, yeah. Been busy this summer, though, eh? There wasn't really a summer for taking time off. It's a lot of <laughs> while I was away, I noticed. Yeah, no kidding. I have taken no time off. Yeah, I was going to say, Keith, you have been uh, you have been working day and night now. I can't remember the last time I looked up the TV and there was somebody sitting uh, filling in on vacation for you. Uh, no, uh, it's, uh, it's been a busy time. We were unprecedented time. We, I mean, we haven't changed government in 16 years. Yeah. Uh, so there's a lot going on here. No kidding. Uh, guys, let's start off with the Trans Mountain Pipeline. Uh, as we know, uh, the NDP government has sworn to stop the pipeline, and so far it's a major ace in the hole, it appears anyway, uh, to try and get that done is through the court system. They were granted intervener status in the court challenge of the National Energy Board decision. Uh, but in doing so, the judge absolutely ripped the NDP for a shoddy application. I'll just quote here before I go to you guys. This is from Justice David Stratus of the Federal Court of Appeal. British Columbia does not appear to understand the basic ground rules of the complex proceedings it is seeking to enter. Uh, heady stuff, Keith. Yeah, no, it was uh, it was a real grudging uh, granting of intervener status by that judge. I'm uh, not impressed at all with BC's uh, performance on this file. In fact, they've got till today. They've got to put their, their submission in today, and we're still not clear whether they're going to meet that. Uh, but, uh, yeah, he ripped them uh, big time in, in their lack of knowledge of exactly what this proceeding was all about. And again, I wonder whether the courts are really going to be the uh, the avenue of shutting this down. I, I really have my doubts. Given the Federal Court of Appeals ruling on the Site C Dam court challenges by First Nations, where they said Hydro had uh, consulted substantially with First Nations, and I think they're going to find Kinder Morgan has as well, uh, which leads me to believe that the courts are not going to be where anti-Kinder Morgan activists are going to find solace, it's going to have to be literally on that sort of protest line, civil disobedience line, and try to get the Trudeau government to back off, because the the signals coming from the courts in the last couple rounds of these cases are not good news for opponents of these big projects. And Vaughn, not only did the judge absolutely rip them for what was a a less-than-stellar application, but in that application itself, he basically said you've confined yourself to basically two avenues of of inquiry, and after that, uh, it's sayonara if you kind of go outside those lines. Yeah, he said they sort of threw everything but the kitchen sink into that application, a whole bunch of issues that are irrelevant to the proceedings, which proceedings have been going on for months, right? And And there's 16 different court actions by 31 different parties already involved in this and he said you're coming in at the last minute late with no explanation for uh, you know why it took you five weeks to put this together and then you raised a whole bunch of issues that are irrelevant so he said yes because it's in the interest of the bc public that the province have intervener status you're going to get it but he said there's only two issues you've raised that are relevant to this proceedings. One is whether or not First Nations were adequately consulted, so that's before the court, so they can BC can comment on that. And the second one is whether or not the federal review panel gave adequate consideration to the risks of marine oil spills. And then he said, you've got 15 pages you can address on that. You have to get your submission in by Friday, and you're limited to 15 pages. 
and you'll get maybe 30 minutes to argue your points in the oral hearing when the case goes ahead on October the 2nd. And then he said, and if you, if you ignore any of these, you may find yourself out of this ac- uh, application before you get into it. So it really is a very, very short leash that he put them on. I'm actually, I mean, are you guys surprised considering, I mean, they unveiled that sort of high-powered uh, legal consultant they brought on board who is uh, apparently, you know, a, an expert in the field, of, especially of First Nations courts. But uh, considering who they have on board, are you surprised that the application was so shoddy, Keith? Uh, yes and no. I mean, it, it was a, a short time frame, five weeks. Again, given the, the sort of, I wouldn't call it chaotic nature, what's going on around the legislature and in the ministries, but there has been a bit of uncertainty uh, left hanging over the uncertainty that was there for, for mo- most of the summer of who was actually going to be in charge of this government. And the signals coming from the incoming government, the NDP, it was still a lot of guesswork about exactly how far they were on it to go on certain files. And I think that may have captured some of the bureaucracy within the Attorney General's ministry who's charged with coming up with this uh, with this uh, strategy and, and the draft of, of their of their submissions. So I think it's just a sign of the of the uncertainty that occurs with a changing government that uh, such things as that requires such high level analysis and legal expertise as a court ju- uh, submission like this uh, gets called into question. So on that basis, I'm not surprised. Uh, one is, well, I think Shane is harking yeah. back to something that David Eby said on your station in an interview with Jim Harrison right at the end of. July, where he said, you know, we can't just hold this project up on arbitrary grounds. We've got to have good reasons. They have to be well-grounded legally. And I think what we've been hearing from the New Democrats for the past couple of years on this project is kind of wide-ranging political issues. Oh, the province can block this, and the province has power, the province mm-hmm. has jurisdiction. And they've now gone into the very close confines of a complex court case. And what they're finding is, no, you know, Interprovincial pipelines are a federal responsibility. Federal agency already approved this project. The question of access to the country's ports or the country's raw materials, that's a federal issue. And I think what they're finding out is that the politics have got to be put aside, but very narrow grounds to raise this issue in court, and they've been told that in no uncertain terms. Yeah, no kidding. It really pens them in a corner. It'll be interesting to see how it sort of proceeds. I want to talk about Site C, but I also want to give it some time to breathe. So why don't we uh, take a quick commercial break now, and we'll pick it up on the other side with Keith and Vaughn and uh, the Site C submission uh, that was tabled by BC Hydro just yesterday. More on Inside Politics here on Radio NL. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local. First. Keeping you informed from both sides. For Kamloops Computer Center, this is Radio NL's Inside Politics with Shane Woodford. And we're talking to Keith Baldry and Vaughn Palmer. Uh, guys, as we know, the NDP government has sent the Site C Dam for a very expedited review to the BC Utilities Commission yesterday. BC Hydro uh, tabled their report, some 800 plus pages long. Uh, Vaughn, you plowed through this thing. Uh, what did you think of it? Well, I think Hydro has made the most of the situation created by the New Democrats here, which, as you say, it's a very tight time frame for review. Uh, They've got to basically get us a preliminary report by September the 20th and a final report by November the 1st. New Democrats allowing construction to proceed on this project while the review goes on. So, of course, the bill, the meter is still running on the cost of this project. Mm. And the other thing I think Hydro did was they seized on this Canada, having accepted the Paris Accord and greenhouse gas reduction targets, and Hydro is now saying, you know, 
hydroelectric power in a small reservoir like this one is basically emissions-free. So this project could allow Canada, could help the whole country, uh, to get more electricity with very few emissions, and some of the other alternatives won't do that. Um, the running meter problem is that if you, if you want to go to an alternative system to hydro, if you want to say, well, we're going to need power eventually, but we don't think Site C is the answer. Uh, the problem you hit with wind and solar is reliability. The problem you hit with natural gas is emissions. And the problem you hit with any alternative is by the time the New Democrats get around to deciding what to do with this project, hydro will have spent more than $2 billion building Site C and turning the clock back, decommissioning it, according to hydro, could cost a billion dollars. So I think they've made a pretty strong case there for letting this thing be finished because it's so far advanced. We'll see. Uh, now, Keith, uh, considering sort of the narrow scope and the very abbreviated timeline, uh, how much weight is this BC Hydro report going to carry with BCUC in the, in the scope of things? Well, I mean, BCUC, I think, is beholden to take Hydro's numbers because they have no time to challenge them or to do any research to counter them. And so the numbers Hydro's put in here are enormous, $7.3 billion to mothball, uh, to, to terminate the project, which would include uh, remediating the site and acquiring alternative uh, generating capacity from some other uh, forms of energy. Uh, $7.3 billion, basically, to walk away. Uh, which I just think is is an enormous amount of money, uh, and to to mothball it, they put the figure close to thirteen billion dollars. So this is these are huge numbers that it would be very hard, I think, for a, a, a sort of dispassionate nonpartisan utilities commission to simply say, well, we don't believe that. Uh, we think uh, we should still mothball it or terminate it. So I think, given the terms of reference, the government's given the utilities commission, which really narrows their scope. And they have to look at uh, if they're going to replace Site C with another reliable form of energy, of which there is no other reliable form of energy short of nuclear, because wind and solar are not reliable, uh, which leaves hydro on the table, uh, hydroelectricity, and Site C is hydroelectricity. So I think this further bolsters the case for keeping Site C going. Ultimately, it will be a political decision by the NDP cabinet. I think the Utilities Commission is going to be very hard to get separate itself from from uh, the political views of the NDP cabinet, which ultimately will have to make this decision uh, sometime in November or December. As Vaughn says, the meter continues to run. $2.1 billion will have been spent, probably another several billion dollars in contractual obligations. So it's an expensive project to walk away from, no matter which side of the the fence you're on in terms of whether you think this should proceed or not. Yeah, and I note, uh, Vaughn, as you pointed out, uh, when the NDP sent this thing to the BCUC, they look for alternatives that would sort of cost the same or less. Uh, and BC Hydro seems to have seized on that by saying, hey, listen, nothing's going to do the job like this dam will do the job. Sure, because by the time, <laughs> you know, uh, you're going to be starting from scratch on any alternative project. You're going to have to get all kinds of regulatory approval. You're going to have to go through First Nations. You're going to have to go through all of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what's it going to be? Uh, a series of wind farms. Uh, they're not as reliable as a hydroelectric dam. Uh, natural gas, a lot of people, you know, argue, well, natural gas fire generation is cheaper. Right now it is. But then you're going to run into the emissions problem. The other thing I think is the case that if you if you look ahead 15 or 20 years and, and notice that all the automobile manufacturers, for example, Shane, are talking about going to electric cars, there's going to be an awful lot of neighborhoods in British Columbia where everybody's going to be charging their car every night. Yeah. Uh, they're going to need clean electricity to do that if we're going to meet the greenhouse gas targets. 
you work that in and you go, well, you're probably going to need to build more than Site C. You're probably going to need wind farms and solar as well. And those two working together work very well because when the sun is shining, you store water. When the wind is blowing, you store water. And at nighttime, when the sun isn't shining or on a nice uh, calm day, uh, you use your spill your hydroelectric water. You water through the hydroelectric dam and you get your electricity that way. Yeah. Uh, it's going to be a very interesting to see what the BCUC does with this and what direction they give the government. And then again, as, as Keith, as you mentioned, what direction the government does with it. I think they're between a rock and a hard place in that thing. I really do, just with the financials and, and the future demand, etc. Uh, I do want to talk about tolls. Uh, today is, of course, day one in the Lower Mainland of this new toll-free regime. Uh, obviously, a huge election issue that handed the NDP a, a bunch of ridings, key ridings down in Metro Vancouver that helped a great deal to be in the <laughs> position they're in in government. Uh, I'm curious to know from from you guys whether you think um, with the BC Liberals kind of in how they rolled it out with not doing the one low or a lower toll for all crossings to now the NDP seizing on it uh, and then removing those tolls, whether long term it's really going to spike the ball for the mayor's mobility pricing plan. Keith? It's going to be very hard for the mayors to come up with a, a plan that is endorsed by the BC government. The NDP, the lesson they take away from this election is they rolled the dice and said we're going to get rid of the tolls. And what do you know? A whole bunch of ridings, which determines who's going to form power in this province, is who wins the key ridings here, uh, came in, suddenly went from the B.C. Liberals' grasp into the NDP's uh, camp. So we're talking uh, ridings from the eastern suburbs, Burnaby, Tri-Cities, Maple Ridge, which has two ridings, which is served by the Golden Ears Bridge, and, and notably Surrey, where at least a half a dozen ridings flipped from Liberal to NDP. That is the reason, a big reason, why the NDP is in power today. Of course, they're able to secure the support of the Green Party uh, on other issues, but uh, that, that was really the story of the election. I just don't see the NDP government uh, changing its mind on tolls. Uh, and bringing them back, because the lesson of this, this last election is the affordability issue in Metro Vancouver is so acute and mm-hmm. so serious that uh, 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 removing a toll for drivers in those ridings amounts to basically a $1,500 a year gift, which is an enormous amount of money on people who are really sort of surviving on the margins, huge personal debt. They may have uh, even a well-paying job, but the, the, the price of, of their debt the housing crisis, uh, just what it takes to live on a Metro Vancouver is so big that the mere promise of getting rid of a toll is basically a vote determinator. And that, I think, imperils the mayor's plan to bring in any road pricing scheme because I don't see a government backing it from the provincial side. Yeah, and it's interesting you say that because just this morning, Metro Vancouver Chair Greg Moore was on Global raising the specter of kind of looking at tolls again in 2022 uh, when the new Patella Bridge comes online and potentially whatever they decide to do with the with the mass crossing there, Vaughn? Yeah, you got two crossings there, the Patello and the, and the Massey, which are both going to be paid for by tolls, which you cannot do now. You've got two transit lines that are in the works where the financing is still up in the air, and how is that going to be paid for? Uh, you've got already the government committed to starting to raise the carbon tax next year, which many drivers will see as a tax on them as well. So, Yes, uh, we, we, it looks like they got a free lunch today uh, in and around the Lower Mainland because you're off the hook if you were taking uh, the Portman or the Golden Ears to get to and from work every day. 
But in the long run, uh, they're either going to have to rein in their expectations in terms of what they can build in short order, or they're going to have to find another source of revenue that we are not uh, aware of and looking at at the moment. Yeah. A final thought on this, and I'll I'll go to you first on it, Keith, is uh, it still strikes me from John Horgan's press conference, uh, which came shortly after last week's show ended, uh, when he was asked directly about uh, the amount of debt, which is about $3.4 billion, I think, uh, from the portman alone, never mind the golden years, about that going from uh, self-supporting to taxpayer-supported debt. And Horgan's response was basically to say, listen, it's not going to you know, impact our credit rating, it's not going to impact our ability to borrow. Um, you know, an off-the-cuff reaction would be, what, really? Uh, what did you think of that? Yeah, I think uh, Moody's has already served notice. It's getting a little worried about uh, the state of the books. And that, that notice was based on their concern about Hydro's escalating debt levels. Now you throw in the fact that another 3 to $4 billion dollars is going to be added on to the debt. Uh, I think uh, the prospects are, are pretty good that the, our credit rating is going to be downgraded, uh, which will increase the borrowing costs the government has. And depending on how big a downgrade, we're talking you know, anywhere from hundreds of millions, potentially uh, several billion dollars in extra borrowing costs. I don't think it's going to be a, a huge downgrade, uh, potentially. But I think the NDP, again, has gambled that at this time and moment, people's concerns are not about the provincial debt or the direct debt or the taxpayer-supported debt. I mean, there's so many debt categories people are unaware of. Uh, The overall debt will continue to climb no matter who's in government because we continue to build infrastructure, and people want infrastructure. They want roads. They want hospitals. They want schools. That gets added to the debt. So this abstract notion of, you know, transferring debt from one pot to another, I think, is lost in the voter, who right now are more worried about their own personal debt levels rather than government debt levels. And I think there's a bit of forgiveness uh, from the voters right now to a government that's willing to increase the debt, maybe lower the, the credit rating, but at the same time give something back to the, to the people, which in this case is uh, no more tolls. Yeah, I'd agree with you. Uh, final thought uh, to you, Vaughn. If they... Uh they're going to have to eat the debt associated with the two toll bridges. Uh, they're already talking about accelerating the borrowing to build new schools. They're talking about a couple more hospital projects, one of them dear to your heart there in Kamloops. They are talking mm-hmm. about, well, if they kill Site C, Hydro points out, that debt goes straight onto the books right away. Uh, so eventually you reach the limit of how much borrowing you can do without affecting your credit rating. I think eventually you reach the limit of public patience with your ability to manage finances, too. So this decision uh, means probably 3 or $4 billion that they can't borrow and spend on something else. All right. Uh, let's take a quick break, and we'll have more with Keith and Vaughn on the other side as we dive into the B.C. Liberal Party tabling its leadership contest rules and some other topics as well, right here on Inside Politics on Radio NL. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local. First. For Kamloops Computer Center. You're listening to Inside Politics on Radio NL. Once again, here's Shane Woodford. Well, we're a step closer to having a BC Liberal Party leadership race with contestants and all as the party tabled its guidelines for how that race would be run. Before we dive into the details of that, uh, I was caught by how quickly the party first defended and then backed down on holding the final day of voting on what would, uh, would be the same day as the NFL Super Bowl. And now I'm not a big, the biggest NFL fan in the, in the, in the works here. I know, Keith, you are. Uh, but even I would know not to run something up against the Super Bowl. Well, 
Well, I spotted it really quickly, put it out on Twitter. Uh, it was contacted by some liberal, notable liberals saying, what? <laughs> <laughs> uh, they were uh, caught unaware. Uh, I know a number of liberal MLAs uh, phoned the party board and said, are you out of your mind? Uh, we can't do this. I walked into a, a, some liberal staffers were meeting in the building, the legislature, and uh, it, caucus staff, and I said, do you have any idea your party just scheduled your vote for Super Bowl Sunday? And they said, what? So... Uh, the party board, I don't so, think so much they defended as they realized we can't do this. And the obvious solution was instead of holding the vote on a Sunday, which you would have been invisible, because whether you're a Super Bowl fan or not, uh, the, the reality is mm-hmm. it is a huge audience and it's really a one-day event that nothing else can compete with it. They're going to hold the vote on a Saturday. So, you know, smart decision to do it uh, was, uh, again, I think sort of another example of, boy, when you go from government to opposition in this manner, you're you're distracted big time. And the Liberals just seem to be at sea uh, right now. They are they are a leaderless bunch. They are uh, seem to be on the verge of, of fracturing. Uh, they don't seem to have that internal discipline right now. And I think it speaks volumes that they just dropped the ball here and thinking we're going to hold the vote on Super Bowl Sunday, not even realizing, not even paying due diligence to making sure that was the right day to do it. So it's a, it's a symptom of a party that is in serious trouble. Yeah, and the one the executive director initially defended as being the Super Bowl of politics fun. Yeah, yeah, no, it was silly. <laughs> yeah, I thought the the last line that they couldn't persuade the NFL to move the game, so they decided to move the convention was probably a better way to handle it. Oh, I must admit, I must admit, the date, of course, never occurred to me because I am famously ignorant about most matters involving ports, and I, I needed Keith to lean into my office uh, here in Victoria and tell me that it was an issue, and I kind of went, I guess this Super Bowl is some kind of big deal, eh? So, uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, they, they should run their dates past Keith, is my suggestion in the future. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about uh, some of the guidelines here. There's some interesting things in here. I mean, not only do the candidates have to have deep pockets to, to kind of get into the race, uh, the spending limits have been increased, uh, even though the actual runtime of the campaign's also increased as well. So $600,000, uh, and we're going to get a leader named. Uh, timing I find very interesting, uh, right before the uh, spring sitting of the legislature when all sorts of confidence matters could potentially pop up. Keith, obviously some thought was put into that. Yes, uh, they wanted a, a leader in place, I think, before things really got going in the House with a budget and a throne speech. Uh, I'm not sure it makes a huge difference, but I guess they want that person in place. Now, it's, if it's a person from outside the legislature, they may not have a seat at that time because the by-election to fill Christy Clark's seat in, in Kelowna may not be held until late February, mm. which is the latest it can go. So uh, the, the NDP still c- holds the cards on that. In terms of spending, it's going to be interesting. The, the limit is $600,000. For, uh, I think it's six or six fifty uh, per candidate, but the NDP's campaign reform, campaign finance reform bill, which comes in front of the House this fall, if it uh, goes into effect and becomes law, it may have an impact on how much money can be raised in leadership races. So mm. the Liberals may set the figure at six hundred. It's far from clear whether people will be able to to raise that kind of money and spend that kind of money in the face of this uh, new legislation we're expecting. And it's going to take $50,000 for someone to jump into this race. No small chump change here, uh, and that may preclude some from from, uh, from going in. So it's, uh, it's an expensive 
uh, undertaking to get involved in these things, and I think that's going to cause a couple of potential uh, candidates maybe to have second thoughts. Yeah. Uh, Vaughn, the other thing that caught my eye was this uh, issue about hiring a vendor in order to ensure that everybody who's voting is, in, in fact, an eligible voter after uh, those uh, notorious pin problems that popped up in the 2011 campaign. Yeah, so this issue has festered quietly in the party for years. There are a number of liberals who think that the 2011 race was was distorted or, or bent in some way by the abuse of bulk memberships selling uh, memberships in large numbers, assembling PIN numbers, because to vote online you have a PIN number, right, and then voting the PIN numbers in bulk. And there's some people in the party have been com- complained about it at the time, they have been suspicious about it ever since. And the liberals have always, oh, no, no, you know, that's just the sort of thing that people, sore losers, say. Well, in effect, you're right, Shane. What they admitted this week is that there was a problem. Mm-hmm. They've hired an outside firm to come in and to manage this issue in the future. They've brought in controls so that bulk selling of memberships, uh, people are going to have to buy their own membership and manage their own PIN number, and they're going to put in safeguards to make sure that happens. So... In effect, the party has conceded after the fact that there was a problem in 2011, and they're going to take steps to make sure it doesn't happen again. That that PIN number problem was also an issue in the NDP leadership race that Adrian Dix won, if you recall, and the bulk uh, sign-ups of members. Um, And I still think, you know, I just hope political parties go take a, a a page out of history and go back to the delegate conventions where people get together in a convention hall, committed members of the party, do some horse trading, some compromising, and come up with a candidate voted on the floor rather than this one member, one vote, which I think is a really soulless way of, uh, and passionless way of selecting a leader. Yeah. Uh, last thought on this particular topic, but uh, we know as far as candidates, uh, Diane Watts has told CKNW she's going to make a decision uh, next week. Uh, Mike Bernier has told me that he's going to make a decision in coming days. Anybody else in the woodwork that we could potentially make a decision one way or another in the next little while? I think Andrew Wilkinson, former cabinet minister, is very close. Uh, he's all but in. And Mike Lee, the new uh, MLA for Vancouver Langara, I think is uh, going to jump in. I'm less certain about Todd Stone, your member for, for Kamloops there. Uh, and I think Watts is going to go for it. Yeah, you don't, uh, yeah, about 55% of the voting strength, even with this quota system they brought in, will be in and around Metro Vancouver. I think the island gets 17%, and the north and interior get 28%. So if, the, if those ridings were to unite behind a single candidate like Bernier or Stone, uh, they would have more more clout at the convention or in the vote than if they split their vote among, well, Stone and Bernier. So it's almost like if one jumps in, if they want the North and the Interior to have the influence they hope, uh, maybe the other one should stay out. Yeah, that's an interesting thought. Uh, Vaughn, I wanted to get uh, your thoughts on this real quickly. I know we're running out of time, but it's an interesting case. This uh, this case of the appeal court uh, okay. with a, with a lawsuit involving the BC mother who alleged her kids were being uh, sexually abused, and it kind of threw the uh, Ministry of Children and Family Development, which was already taking a beating under the bus a little while ago. Now that has essentially been uh, tossed by the appeal court. So what's going on here? The lower court accused the uh, Ministry of Children and Family Development and social workers of complicity in allowing children to be sexually abused by their father. It it said that the ministry knew about the problem and left the kids, the father, with access to them, and there was sexual abuse. And the uh, appeal court 
I mean, trashed the lower court judgment at great length. But the main impact for, for public servants in particular is that it took the stain off the ministry on that issue. It struck me as outrageous from the beginning, the thought that social workers, whatever you think of them, would allow children to be knowingly sexually abused, mm-hmm. and the court said that didn't happen. Yeah, I think the social workers were, were got a clean bill of health here. I know one of them, uh, through an intermediary, was just absolutely devastated by the the courts, uh, lower courts ruling, and by the former children representative uh, uh, characterization of this case and of the of the social workers. They put their heart and soul into the, the issue of child protection, and they were crushed when this judge just ripped them big time, and I think they feel vindicated, justly so, by this judgment from a higher court. All right, and uh, one final thought before we say goodbye for this episode, uh, uh, education back to school on Tuesday for everybody. That is one of the more interesting files. Rob Fleming is in charge as the education minister. BCTF wants a ton of money. Uh, He says some money is coming in this September budget as well. Uh, Lots of districts are saying they're having a, a tough time uh, abiding by the class size and composition deal uh, where it comes to both creating space and finding teachers to fill them. Uh, how tough a bill are we, are we talking about here, Vaughn? Uh, well, turn the page for sure on the system. You've got a very teacher-friendly government and a very union-friendly government now. Uh, I think there will be more money. They're talking about accelerating school construction. I think the question the public might want to ask is if we're going to dump a whole lot of money into the system, are there going to be better results coming out of the other end? Are we going to get better marks, uh, better graduation rates, all the things that you hope for when you spend more money on the system? Uh, Final word to you, Keith. It's going to take at least a couple of years, I think, to really sort this stuff out, uh, to hire enough teachers, to find enough teachers, to find enough specialist teachers. It's not like there's, there's a bunch of specialist teachers waiting out there to be hired. They're, they're, that's a shortage of them, a shortage of French immersion teachers. Uh, there is a surplus of sort of general teachers, but districts have to hire, we're talking thousands of people, and they're going to be grappling with this, I think, for, for a couple of years. In terms of the outcomes, you know, for all this talk about the education system being underfunded and broken for years, BC still led the country in outcomes on a number of levels, whether it was marks or even graduation rates. But there's still some challenges out there, notably on the special needs side. And as Vaughn says, this is a teacher-friendly government, but it's going to take some time, I think, before uh, satisfaction runs rampant through the system. All right. Uh, gentlemen, as always, thank you very much. Appreciate it. Okay. Bye. Uh, Talk a, to you next week. Have a great long weekend, both of you. That's Keith Baldry and Vaughn Palmer. We'll talk to them again next Friday right here at Inside Politics. We'll take a quick break. And on the other side, we'll talk to Hamish Telford. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local. First. For Kamloops Computer Center. You're listening to Inside Politics on Radio NL. Once again, here's Shane Woodford. I'd like to welcome back to the program uh, University of Fraser Valley Associate Professor in Political Science, Hamish Telford. Hamish, how are you? Very well, thank you. Good. Uh, thanks for coming on. Hey, uh, I wanted to get you back on because, uh, A, we've seen uh, this new NDP government that we speculated uh, for many weeks about how it would work. We've seen them in action for a few weeks now. And on top of that, next week we're going to see a, a, sp- a fall sitting of the legislature, which is a rarity in and of itself. Uh, but for the first time in 16 years, uh, one with an NDP government at the helm. Uh, let's start there. Uh, looking ahead to next week, uh, what do you anticipate as far as this new government kind of coming out of the gate, throne speech and all? It'll be interesting to see how, how, how well they've done their homework. Uh, they've not had a lot of opportunity uh, to, to prepare. They've, they've, especially the finance minister who has to, to present a, a budget of sorts uh, in, in a week or two. She's really only had two, two months to prepare for it, whereas a finance minister typically has a whole year to prepare a budget. So uh, it'll be interesting to see. Uh, you know, 
by and large, they, they seem to have perform, performed well. They certainly, of course, as a new government and taking over power after 16 years, have a lot of energy and enthusiasm, um, but, but perhaps, perhaps a little bit too much enthusiasm. They seem to have been a little bit rushed uh, with, uh, with their excitement, so it'll be interesting to see if they sort of slow it down and, and uh, have worked out policy details. When you say they've been a little rushed, uh, what do you mean exactly? What are you, what are you thinking of? Well, there have been, a, you know, obviously, one, perhaps one of the biggest faux pas was the dismissal of Gordon Wilson uh, for apparently not filling out uh, his w- written reports, and, and uh, you know, he did not take that well, and, and it's discovered, well, actually, he had uh, done written reports. He's now suing the government. So there was a, an announcement that was made within a week or two of the government taking office, and, and clearly uh, they were rushed. And, and, uh, and there have been similar sorts of things, nothing... Uh, terribly egregious, um, but but they, they have been sort of uh, enthusiastic to get a new message out, but without necessarily having all of the details sorted out. <laughs> uh, when we look at the legislature, I'm going to be interested to see the dynamics at play here, because BC, for almost the last two decades, has had a certain rhythm with the BC Liberals at the helm. Uh, and now, for the first time, we're going to have the NDP uh, sort of guiding the ship with the BC Liberals in opposition. Uh, do you anticipate, while they, obviously the government wants a, a an agenda out there. Do you anticipate the BC Liberals are going to play spoiler here at all? Or? Oh, I don't think the, the BC Liberals are going to give them an easy time at all. They're, they're going to uh, imagine, assume their role as official opposition with, with gusto, uh, particularly in this this scenario, right, that the government's living on a, on a knife edge. It's not like they have a stable working majority and are going to be there for four years. Uh, so I think that uh, even in the absence of Christy Clark, the, the Liberals will go after them hard. Uh, but I think the bigger problem for the NDP might be the Green Party, and in particular Andrew Weaver. I think the John Horgan may come to regret not having included Mr. Weaver in the cabinet, and you already, already get the impression that Mr. Weaver uh, regrets not having joined the cabinet. He seems to have been blindsided by some policy announcements, and he's not been shy in, in voicing his his opposition uh, to them. That, that makes it a strange working relationship indeed. Unlike anything I've ever seen before, I lived through the Ontario government back in 1985 with uh, David Peterson's Liberals were supported by Bob Ray's NDP from the outside, and I, I don't remember this kind of bickering and feuding. Uh, and this is in the early days of this arrangement. So uh, it, it'll be interesting to see how that relationship plays out as well. Yeah, I often wonder if Mr. Weaver is in some way being a little calculating, though, because he can't be seen to be married too close to the NDP. Uh, he's got to kind of have his own identity and his own thing going on. Uh, do, you, do you think that there's some kind of sort of tactical work at play in his mind here or no? There may be, um, but, but they've already signed away their soul. They, they, they said in that written agreement with the NDP that they would back them on confidence motions for four years. Uh, that takes away all their leverage, <laughs> uh, and the NDP know it. And, and so I think that uh, the, the, sort of the, the bad thing for his perspective about being outside the cabinet is he's not part of the decision-making uh, process, and, and he can get blindsided by, by policy announcements. And on the other side, um, he's free to criticize the government. And I think that's why John Horgan may regret not having him in cabinet. If there is a strong principle of cabinet solidarity in our parliamentary system of government, and uh, Mr. Weaver would have trouble being such an outspoken critic of the government if he was part of it. So it's an interesting uh, arrangement. And as I said, I think both may be coming to regret uh, how they've played it out. Uh, just out of curiosity, do you think that uh, Mr. Weaver and the Greens have so far gotten much out of this uh, relationship or no? 
Uh, I don't think so. Huh. Um, and uh, certainly uh, the, the lifting of the bridge tolls was not uh, something a green government would have done. And, and Mr. Weaver uh, said in no uncertain terms he thought it was a, a bad policy decision. And uh, we'll have to see what uh, comes in the throne speech in the budget. Uh, already uh, the NDP seems to be, I would say, kicking the can down the road on party finance reform. That was very high on, on the Green Party wish list. And uh, I, I would be somewhat surprised if that legislation is actually passed in this fall sitting of the legislature. It may be introduced, uh, but probably not passed. I think the NDP feels that that's at a financial disadvantage vis-a-vis -vis the Liberals until they've had their golf tournaments and their fundraisers, and I think they want to continue to do that and pad their bank account before they pass uh, new campaign finance legislation, and that, that will anger the Greens for sure. I would imagine it would also anger some voters, and I, I don't know, I, my guesswork there is that they're in some ways playing with fire a little bit. They are. They were certainly accused uh, earlier in the year, before the election campaign and during the election campaign, of being hypocritical. Uh, on the one hand, saying they were going to change the legislation, and on the other hand, continuing uh, to, to raise funds under the old legislation, taking big uh, donations from unions in particular. And, you know, I think they could justify it back then, saying, look, we've got to... Uh, play by the rules that exist so we can compete with, with the Liberals. Uh, but now they're in a position to actually change the rules. So I think the, uh, the charges of, of hypocrisy could, could grow louder if they don't move quickly on it. The other big piece of legislation that I suspect we'll see in this, uh, this sitting, although, again, it may not get passed until next, is uh, the one that sort of sets the table for this proportional representation referendum. What are your thoughts on that? That's a minefield, uh, as we saw at the federal level, right? Uh, um, Justin Trudeau never committed himself to proportional representation, but he committed himself to electoral reform, said the 2015 federal election would be the last and to first pass the post, uh, and, and they established a parliamentary process to start investigating alternatives, uh, which, which got bogged down and uh, didn't produce the result that the government wanted, and eventually... Uh, Trudeau bailed on it. So that was a very explicit promise that he made and then bailed on it. And we'll see if he pays a price for it. I think that, uh, you know, political scientists love talking about electoral reform. And when we talk about it in class, it seems uh, theoretically very easy. But when you try to do it in practice, uh, it becomes difficult and protracted. Um, if I remember correctly, they, the NDP Greens want to have a referendum in place for the municipal elections next fall. I find that a very short timeline and, and one that I think is all but impossible to make. Yeah, I would, I would tend to agree with you. Uh, I wanted to touch on the topic of bridge tolls. As we speak today is uh, day one of this uh, toll-free uh, regime under the NDP government. Obviously a huge issue in the Lower Mainland. You and I both know that. Uh, but I'm curious, do you think this one will play out over the long term well or, or no? That depends what happens. Uh, I, I think that uh, we've got the... Uh, lower mainland mayor's uh, council or, or committee uh, looking at uh, road pricing more broadly. And, and I think it's probably inevitable uh, that there will be some sort of road pricing brought in. And I think that uh, while that may, system may be more fair, I think some voters may feel duped that on the one hand uh, the government sort of gave us and then on the other hand took us away. And uh, that may uh, not play well for, for the government. And so, yes, they fulfilled their promise, uh, but if a new system comes into place, which ultimately uh, causes m motorists to pay more, 
uh, they may not be happy about it. Although, again, the system will largely be more fair. It just it could earn the government animosity across the board, not just south of the Fraser. Yeah. Uh, and, I mean, I've already talked to Metro Vancouver Chair Greg Moore, who has basically uh, told me outright, and the easiest way to enact this mobility pricing regime is to uh, toll bridge crossings. Uh, and I think he even told me, I mean, once those new bridges and or tunnels or whatever they do with George Massey, and then we know a new one's coming in Patella, once those assets are all in, that then it might be time to take another look at it in, I think, about 2022. But I often think the tolls are a little bit like the HST now, a little bungled in how they were rolled out and pretty tough to bring back at this point. I think that's absolutely right, and the comparison to the HST is, 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 is I think, a good one. Uh, once you bungle this kind of policy, um, it becomes sort of like a third rail, and, and you can't touch it. Uh, I just wanted to touch on uh, next week's sitting the legislature again before uh, before we end the segment here, Hamish. Uh, we've talked about some of the bigger pieces of legislation. Uh, I'm curious on the opposition side of things uh, with the Liberals being kind of, uh, I don't want to say rudderless, but they've got an interim leader in, in Rich Coleman there, but they're going to have their own leadership issues. Will that kind of mm, cause some confusion among the opposition ranks, you think, or no? I don't think it'll cause confusion. Um not in the legislature, but you may have leadership candidates outside the legislature saying things are not wholly consistent with what's being said inside the legislature. And I think the, the, the bigger issue for the opposition, and, and this may work well for the, for the NDP, uh, is that you will potentially have leadership candidates not in the legislature uh, on a daily or weekly basis as they're off uh, running their campaigns. So to the extent that we have a fall legislature, although I don't imagine the fall legislature is going to run very long, I, I would be surprised if it runs beyond September. Uh, but as I say, you may have people absent from the legislature, which gives the NDP a bit more margin of error and a bit more comfort. Uh, and just your thoughts quickly on the BC uh, Liberals and the, and the uh, leadership rules that they place down. And all those candidates are going to have to have some rather deep pockets. Uh, there is a bit of a time frame involved here, although I note, interestingly enough, the timing to name a new leader will put uh, a new person at the helm uh, just before the, uh, the spring sitting of the legislature and all sorts of confidence issues that could pop up. That's right, uh, unless the NDP sort of um, uh, plays some, some political gamesmanship and calls the legislature back early in the new year uh, to pass the next budget. And, and there would be, uh, the Liberals would howl and protest, but uh, uh, the Liberals have been known to play their own games uh, as well. Um, so it's, uh, uh, we'll, we'll see how that one uh, plays out. As I say, I think the, the fall legislature is going to be fairly short. They're just going to get the budget uh, passed, maybe one or two other items, and then, and then uh, put the, everything else off until uh, next year. And uh, the Liberals certainly hope to have a full team in place uh, by that point. Uh, although, depending on who they select, uh, the leader may not be uh, in the legislature from, from the outset. Uh, Hamish, always appreciate it. Always enjoy listening to what you have to say. I uh, appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you, Shane. Have a good day. And that was Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Fraser Valley, Hamish Telford. And that's it for today's show. We'll see you again next Friday right here on Radio NL on Inside Politics. Local. First. CHNL. AM 610 in Kamloops. RadioNL.com. The Valley's first choice for local news.